Welcome to the Mary Trump show. We are not Mary Trump. Um, <laughs> Jen and I are subbing in uh, today as co-hosts of the show uh, as Mary has attend to um, other business. And so we're super excited to co-host together for, I think, is this our first time, Jen, co-hosting together? Can you believe it? I wow. think that it is. Why? Because I always... We're always either on here together or I'm interviewing you on one of my 50, 11,000 podcasts. So hey, that's don't fun. touch, don't touch that microphone thing. It gave my, made my ears. Oh, hurt. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so Jen, um, you have been in court, uh, for the longest time. And so we can go over, review the hell that we've all been living in, uh, for the last, uh, week plus in America. I find that every single week, uh, I don't know about you, I want to end the week with a martini that is the size of a swimming pool um, so that I can move through all of the emotions that I have. Hi, Brian. Surprise. Um, I start the week with a martini. You start the week (laughs) and you don't end it with it? Okay. Actually, Um, was yesterday the start of the week? Because I had one last night with my husband. So yes. Okay. Monday. Yeah. Um, so let's start off, uh, Brian, um, well, Jen, you tell us you are now peeking your head back up to, uh, the surface. Um, we have the debt ceiling. We have fascism on the rise. I just saw a video that Joy Reid, uh, from MSNBC posted. It was, uh, a TikTok, um, about Lauren Boebert. I did one as well because she thought that it was a great idea to pose with a new t-shirt that has an AR-15 going across the front of it that says, since we're redefining things, this is a a hole puncher, a cordless hole puncher. I'm going to put it in the chat, folks. If you follow me on Twitter, you will see because I reposted it, D2Cents, what you see up here. It is so disgusting. um, And... I, I don't understand how people like Lauren Boebert are voted into office. I don't understand how, how after children were just murdered this past weekend in Texas, before that in Tennessee, people shot in Kentucky, Alabama, all over the place that you would wear a t-shirt with an AR-15, making a joke about it and smiling as you're holding it up. But Jen, um, no, class. no class, just trash. Um, I mean, look, I, you know, it's the sideshow has taken center stage in this country and I'm all for, um, you know, creative ideas about how to burn down your own trashy life. But, you know, I really, it's kind of like, you know, these, these books that you read about, you know, organized crime. And you, you, with the organized crime, I just finished reading one, so this is for fun because you know that's how I waste my time. And you know, the the, you know, the novel I was reading, you know, the, the typical trope is when things start to get really bloody out on the streets. At some point, the mob folks get together and they're like, "Listen, the ordinary people aren't going to allow this. We have to manage our own crooked business without hurting civilians and you know, you know, buildings blowing up, blood in the streets, and such." And that's kind of how I feel about people like crazies like Lauren Boebert and, you know, homophobic people and gun-toting folks. You know, this is America. 
And if you're going to live your freakish sideshow of, you know, being a deadbeat and not paying your own debts and, you know, being toxic and mean and telling jokes that aren't funny and, you know, hurting people, I, I want to protect the innocent. But I especially don't want the sideshow to kind of take over what should be the center of America. And America, like any other country, I'm not saying American exceptionalism, it, but America, like any other country, is filled with creative, smart, talented, loving people who want, who are into human flourishing, creativity, all, you know, sports, all the things that make humanity live to its best. And, you know, I just find it petty, disgusting, and trashy mm-hmm. that these people are not only taking over the government, but also trying to get rid of the good parts of our culture um, that show the best of what this country can offer. And, I, you know, it's, it's pathetic. Um, and it's like Jerry Springer just died. They're, like, they are the Jerry Springer of politics and culture. That's I mean, at say. least he was entertaining, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like he wasn't passing policy. Like, he was just, you know, entertaining and brought trash on, you know, at the advent of reality TV. We didn't think that it was going to seep into our politics like a cesspool. Um, Brian. That's not nice to cesspools. I think they have some true. function. Okay. Uh, as somebody who swims in the soup every day, and by the way, <laughs> I love when whenever you call uh, the the White House press corps, just DC in general, the soup. Um, we went, you know, over the weekend. We had some lightheartedness with the White House correspondence dinner. Um, it was a mix of lightheartedness as well as some serious notes that the president hit um, in his speech. But I wanted to get your reactions because some were saying that they felt that the White House correspondence dinner that that was really Biden's reelection uh, campaign launch. And that it wasn't so much the video that he put out that um, that he hit a lot of different tones. And I wanted to get your reactions uh, from from that dinner. Well, I wish I would see him in the White House as, uh, for as long and as often as we saw him at the White House correspondence dinner. Um, he, 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 had, he had a good ten, he had a tight five, as they say in the business. He was up there. He actually did a tight ten. Uh, good stand up. Um, and he can, you know, he can uh, dice and slice for the best of them. I think he's great fencing. Uh, verbally fencing. I would like to see him more often. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was his kickoff for his, for it. There's no doubt that that was the kickoff to his, but his reelection campaign. But the thing that um, really kind of disturbs me about it is when we're talking about, you know, and this is us, this is the White House correspondence group, the, the press corps, you know, we treated it as if it were a very um, solemn affair that we were taking, uh, you know, our, our case about the first amendment to the public and we're taking it seriously. And, and there's just nothing more obscene to me than watching reporters wax philosophic about the first amendment when they don't exercise it on a daily basis. And at the same time, we're talking about freeing uh, journalists that have been jailed. Mm -hmm. And yet we've never come to grips with the fact that we had a journalist killed by uh, Saudi Arabia. Yep. That, that, you know, you're looking at Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi yeah. the, the president promised on the campaign trail to do something about that. He did nothing about it. Trump did less. Trump, I, I think, elevated uh, MBS to, you know, godlike stature. And he's the one who's responsible for the death. Then you've got uh, Julian Assange and think what you will of him. He's still in prison. But he, he the only thing he's charged with is distributing information. And we're still prosecuting him for that. 
and there was no one harmed in that. Reality Winner spent her time in prison for uh, letting loose that information. So I find it when when reporters stand up and wax philosophic about the First Amendment, I often have to laugh because I don't think we were very good at our jobs and that we like to think of ourselves as, as the keepers and the holders of the torch, but we don't hold people to the fire very much. And it would be really nice to see uh, Joe Biden out in front of us answering questions more often because he represents his uh, administration better than anyone else does. He's quite good at doing it. Uh, the people on his staff are not that good and it, we need to see more of him. And he says, you know, the thing that he said, Danielle, that is really telling me, you know, he said, judge me if I'm too old, judge me by my actions. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can, can we see a little more often so we can make that judgment? <laughs> Just like to see every once in a while, pal, he hasn't been to the White House briefing room yet. So he's done a lot of good things as president, but the communication in this administration still is sorely lacking. You know, one of the things I, I just want to go back to one of the points that you made, Brian, with with regard to um, the First Amendment and journalists that have been killed and are currently in prison. You know, Eamon Mohedin, whose show I joined uh, during the White House Correspondents Dinner for their special coverage uh, last Saturday, also brought to the attention that the president didn't mention um, the Palestinian-American journalist, Shireen Abu uh, Akhle, who was uh, killed by Israeli soldiers. Yes. Um, uh, and that 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 he felt, um, and I agree with him, that that was also a missed opportunity because, again, you know, we want to. Uh, How about pretend. those who were jailed in the Carolinas? Yeah, yeah. We were we, taking we, pictures of vid videos of cops. Uh, how about I, the one who was beaten in what was it, Idaho? Uh, what what there? Look, and I don't say this lightly. I mean, you know, I spent my time in jail four times to defend the First Amendment. So I, I know of which I speak. And it's it it bothers me to, you know, we call it the nerd prom in D.C. when we mm -hmm. go to the yeah. And it is. I mean, we take ourselves, you know, it was a moment of lightness, which is fine. But then to take ourselves so seriously, you know, they also call, you know, D.C. Uh, Hollywood for ugly people. And, and oof, I'm telling you, that's that, that that's that's a trope. But the simple fact of the matter is I wish we would take the First Amendment more seriously day to day and not just reserve it for one night out of the year and make it the mountain on which we celebrate. I mean, I wish that we took the First Amendment as seriously as the far right takes the Second Amendment, right? That there is, exactly. just, you know, there, there are no policy can move around uh, with regard to words don't, you know, aren't the same, don't have the same effect as bullets in this country. And yet we don't elevate. Uh, the importance of freedom of speech as the foundation of our democracy in the way that the far right has made, not even the far right, just the Free right. speech is democracy. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and when, when Trump came out and said, we are the enemy of the people, my comeback was always, no, we are the people. That's, uh, I mean, uh, and I'll defend those that, I, you know, it used to be, I disagree with what you say, but we'll defend to death your right to say it. So you can hate me. You can feel free to call me all kinds of names. You can't act on that. That's why you get to see the Ku Klux Klan march, because they have free speech rights. I would rather see those people out in public so I can identify them. And that's one of the blessings of, of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert is, boy, they're right out there in the front. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to guess what they're all about. They're telling you. <laughs> and if you choose that instead of instead of choosing wisely, then, you know, it's like that scene in, in, uh, um, in, in the uh, – uh, well, 
now I'm having a moment. <laughs> it's the scene in Indiana Jones at the end with, you know, when the, you chose poorly, you know, mm-hmm. choose wisely. Don't yeah. choose poorly. But you, you need to see who these people are. You need to give them the opportunity to speak. And that gives you the opportunity to know what they're all about. But the far right and, uh, and to, to some extent, many people in government don't want you to, to hear or see or transparency is not their thing. And that hurts us all. Yeah, I, and I want to. I know we're talking about the press, and so it, and sort of the role here, but I want to kind of pivot a little, if you'll allow me, because this you sort of at the center of everything right now is where the rubber meets the road, which is the money, right, in the economy, and the fact that while they're also having the sideshow, and while while we're also worried, as you're sort of. The undercurrent of what you're saying, Brian, is we have basically two viable candidates running uh, in the primaries. We have Donald Trump running as the Republican candidate. Is he viable? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. I'm not sure. that one, Jen. Well, <laughs> he's, he's on the he's on okay. the ticket, but I don't Let's know. Say if lead. Know. The leading candidates <laughs> yeah, okay. are Donald Tr- viable in terms of will make maybe get a nomination. We've got Donald Trump in the Republican candidate. We have uh, Joe Biden as as a Democratic candidate. I'm confident that I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. You are a journalist, and of course, you want to make sure that that this is a candidate who can make it through the election and make it into the White House and govern. Again, I just speaking for myself. I have no worries, but that you know we're not supposed to take things on faith we're supposed to take things on evidence and so you're right the press needs to do its job in that in that way i also think the press needs to do its job in another way which is actually covering um financial markets and economic policy um in a way that the public can understand and that that's not just about um not just about who's for this and who's against something. And I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing that coverage and maybe this has more to do with the public's appetite and understanding how, how any, any of this stuff works. But I'm deeply concerned that the Republicans aren't just playing a game. They're playing a game that we're all going to lose when they're holding um, our economy um, and our credit rating in this country hostage to their pet projects and their desire to drown our social programs in a bathtub. And I, I They're really only wish. In power, Jen. It's, What'd you it's say? All, it's just a power grab. Everything right. with them is a power grab. The debt ceiling is, and you won't get us in the press to discuss it. You'll get a few, but most of us like in the press corps in the white house press corps, we don't understand it. There are people, mm-hmm. th- these are young kids that are coming of straight course. out of school and covering the White House. They don't understand that that's ceiling. Well, and I'm not sure members, I have to tell you, and I'm not making to try to be insulting, I'm not sure that members of Congress themselves understand oh, no. how you think the Mark, Fed works. Taylor Green can't spell her name. How she no, but but honestly, no, and this is not meant to insult them, you know, even even people who study economics and even you know people with graduate degrees in all kinds of fields finance or whatever don't necessarily fully understand the big picture and um and are and those who actually understand it aren't always the best at explaining it um and then there's the eyes glazing over um and the and the in the reach for metaphors and although i don't like to liken 
the federal government's budget to a household. And one way, I'll explain why it's helpful. So what's going on right now, and I'm sure folks listening to this already know this, is that we have um, in our budget, um, you know, the federal government hires people, like we have a military, we have contracts with to provide things, whether it's the, the vaccine that we provide or uniforms for the military or paying for um, salaries for government officials or whatever it is that we are paying for to invest in this country. We've made commitments. And by refusing to lift the debt ceiling, what we're saying, it's, we're saying is we're going to default on those existing commitments. It would be like this. It would be like if I, let's say I were much wealthier than I am now. Let's say I had a lot of assets, right? And um, I have credit card bills. And let's say I've hired a summer research assistant and, and I can't imagine, and I have to pay my mortgage. And I decided, you know, and I've made a commitment that I only want to take on so much debt, right? And I look at my monthly bills and I'm like, you know what? My monthly bills are exceeding what my cash flow is. You know, I'm only make, bringing this much money and I've now made commitments because I decide to buy a bunch of stuff and I decide to hire a bunch of people, but I don't feel like paying those bills. So I'm just going to, instead of instead of borrowing against my house, let's say I own a house on the Cape, wouldn't this be nice? That's worth $2 million and I don't owe anything on it, but I like not owing anything on my house in the Cape. And I say, you know what? I'd rather be debt-free on that house. I'm not gonna borrow. I could easily take a line of credit against it for a few hundred thousand dollars and therefore use that to pay my bills. But I, you know, Danielle and Brian, I don't feel like doing that. That was I like what Michael that. Cohen did. He took a HELOC loan out so he could pay off Trump. Okay, well, yes. <laughs> But I could take a home equity loan or even a first mortgage. Well, actually, it wouldn't be a purchase mortgage. I could take a home equity line out on that house and be able to easily make my monthly debt payments. I can pay my car payment. I can pay my mortgage. I can be the summer research assistant. I can pay for the shit on my credit card that I already bought. But if I decide not to do that, that's kind of what the federal government is doing. But let me make it more stark. The federal government isn't like me because unlike, you know, I, I imagine that I had that house on the Cape. It has unlimited money because we can just sell treasury it, it, but we can borrow as much as we want and this is what's a little complicated because the fed can print money that just inflates the value of um that just uh, you know weakens a dollar and maybe co possibly causes more inflation which can be dealt with other ways which republicans have figured out how to do sorry are you okay charlotte oh well, you all right <laughs> like charlotte i'm, I'm so um, sorry i at the same time. What a way to enter the, the conversation, huh? You don't like spending. I, I spending. literally just spilled. I spilled the tea just now. So. Oh, okay. Well, this is so. Hi, Charlotte. This is what I'm. I can. I'm already bored by what I'm saying. Okay. So the you bottom line point, is, Jen, my you, point. The point I'm getting. Point. The point I'm getting to is the U.S. government will never voluntarily default on its debt. It's only a voluntary thing, and it's a piggy thing, and it's turning us all into deadbeats, and I don't want to be a Republican deadbeat. I want to be someone who honors my debts. So you, that's what I have to say, and welcome, Charlotte. And Brian, you have something to add. You've got two issues. One, they do need to raise the debt ceiling to make to, to make the payments. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. they have to do that. But ancillary to that, yeah, you do have to go and look at how you're spending your money. But guess what? The, what the Republicans don't want you to know is that most of that money is being spent on overinflated budgets that they could easily cut specifically in defense. But yep. that's not that's not politically popular to do it. So what they want to cut is the stuff that 
they believe will keep money flowing into their pockets. And that's the stuff, that's the social services that affect the rest of us. That's the real issue at the end of the day. The Republicans are, are, are trying to do two things, trying to embarrass uh, Biden and at the same time trying to continue to funnel money to, to defense and to uh, to the richest of the rich and all of those people while cutting your social services. No, and, wait, can I just jump in before I, I'm going to pass it yeah. to Charlotte one second. I just read this fabulous thing, you know, um, to me, the most exciting thing I've read in a long time. Here's the headline. It came out at 11 today at the New York Times. Is the debt limit constitutional? Biden aides are debating it. Long story made short, it turns out that there is a very strong legal argument that the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution actually trumps, uh, can I say that There's word? There's a actually, word. Actually trumps, because we're on the, 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 the Mary Trump show, actually trumps um, this congressional statute that set a debt limit. Now, uh, you know, I, I, it sounds good to me. I'm going to read you the language of the 14th Amendment, folks. The validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services, in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. Now, you know, there are, of course, legal scholars who say uh, that this does override the statutory borrowing limit, which is right now capped at $31.4 trillion. Um, but it's not clear that Biden's going to make this move. Apparently, whenever Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, is asked and others, they say, you know what? We don't want to even go there. But yeah, let me tell that's, you. That's too difficult. Let me tell you. I would fucking go there before I would concede to what the Republicans want. But well, there, I mean, I, I don't no. think like, but, but real, real quick, um, as a as a layman person to uh, to the debt ceiling and as somebody who doesn't regularly discuss economics, I think that the reality here for people to understand is why do Republicans, to Brian's point, want to continue to funnel money into defense is because they have money in stock that have to do with defense. So the bigger and donors. So the bigger that those budgets get, the more money that ends up into their into their pockets, the more that they're able to continue their grift. And then while we say like, oh, it's not politically astute. No, like the reality is they don't give a shit about polls. But polls will tell you that where do people want? They want their money to actually go to the things that matter to them. Having giving the defense, what was it? I think last year or the year before, like it was like hundreds of millions of dollars over what they had asked for, right? In the defense budget is not what the people want. We never give over the amount of money into education, into uh, social security into healthcare. No, we don't do that because that's not where their donors are. And that's not where they can continue their grip. Wait, 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 Brian, I'm going to the real quick, one last thing. Okay. important point to, to don't forget that the reason why we're in this position is because last, because of the fact that Donald Trump and the Republicans all passed a tax cut to the rich, which made the debt, which screwed our debt. So now it's coming back to haunt them, and they don't want to pay for the tax cut that they <laughs> that they voted in. This is created by the Republicans. This is created by those very people, Danielle, you just pointed at. And now that the bill's coming due, they want Biden to pay for it instead of them. 
let me, or at least pay the political price. Let me reach over to Charlotte on this because Charlotte, thank you for your service. Might be the only nerd Avenger present today who has served in the military, unless you did, Brian. I'm not sure. Well, I I, I served as a reporter in several okay. conflicts. Okay, <laughs> fine. That's but good no, enough. That's so, Charlotte, can you remind me of what your role was? And if you have some thoughts on on this topic, or we can even branch out into some of the other topics we have for the day. Yeah, you know, it, it is troubling to me as someone who served in the Army that there is one party that has steadfastly stood by veterans and our families and our caregivers. And there is one party that has consistently stopped legislation to improve our lives. We forget the post 9-11 GI Bill, the one that transformed educational opportunities for veterans, was initially opposed by the Republican Party. It was Nancy Pelosi who led the charge in getting that passed and changed millions of families' lives overnight. Uh, we forget that it's uh, the Republican Party who oversaw a, an inept and anemic VA in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s. Remember that whole scandal with the old Walter Reed? That was under the Republican Party. It took Democrats coming in to clean it up. Uh, we forget that, uh, you know, once again, it seems that Republicans want to push uh, massive cuts to the VA budget. That's funny because when folks my age were being sent, sent over to Iraq and Afghanistan, there was, a, there was something of a promise made to each other. We would serve honorably, and our country would take care of us when we came home. Republicans are reneging on that deal. And thank God President Biden is saying, absolutely not. Not going to happen. Uh, that he, you know, he posted a great tweet a couple hours ago, a flowchart on uh, White House uh, letterhead, that basically said either you support veterans or you don't. Either you are opposed to cutting funding for veterans' issues and veterans' health care and veterans' benefits, or you are going to seek those cuts irrationally because you're too scared to take away, take away funding and cuts from the, the special interest groups and lobbyists who have been in your offices all day getting uh, sweetheart deals behind the scenes. There is one party that uh, protects veterans, and that is the Democratic Party. The other party does not. And I think that needs to be made abundantly clear right now. It's interesting because it makes a lot of sense, you know, supporting the part of the military budget that goes to corporations that manufacture weapons is very different than supporting a military budget that goes to the veterans who have sacrificed their lives because that's that's caring. That's that's public welfare, right? It's like, we're done with you. What good are you? We've used you. Go away. I'm not speaking for myself, but that's how that feels um, to me. Amen. And I, mean, I, I think that's and by the way, I would assume I would have assumed that Danielle was the one who served in the military, by the way. <laughs> Definitely not. And let me let me tell, let She's me got tell that you that. Uh... I, I, while 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 I, I am always so grateful for those that do serve um, and, and have served. And I have family members that have served in the military. Um, I, I will tell you that exactly what Jen just said, it is this use and abuse of people who in a lot of ways, economically are forced to go into the military as a way to make a way for themselves and their families, right? And it is the low income, middle to low income folks who are not going into West Point, who are not going in and coming in at these high ranking levels. They are your everyday Americans that see the military as an option because they can't afford the debt that college costs in order to go in there. Um, and then are used and abused. And when they return, they're given nothing. 
So you, I mean, it's, it is, I, I will, I, I will hearken uh, to the rapper Tupac that had rapped and said, you got money for war, but can't feed the poor. Like that is the consistency of the Republican party is that they are the biggest war hawks. They are the biggest warmongers. But then when it turns around, when you look at the budgets for veteran affairs, it don't look like the fucking Pentagon. Right. When you when so when they, when they come in and they say like, oh, but we have to cut the we have to cut spending, we have to cut spending. It is it is always at the expense of those that have literally sacrificed their limbs, their lives and their mental health in order to, quote unquote, protect our democracy. And then they, when they return, they are given nothing. You know, I don't understand why they can't figure out how to make money off of that. I mean, you could have like a veterans food services company co- companies that create sort of restaurants that will serve that veterans get like um, a card, like a, a, a cash card that will allow you to buy meals either for free at a discount. There'd be a way to create a corporate infrastructure around helping helping veterans for sure. Um, also, I would say that if I had not ra- been raised in a family that had money for college, there's no question I would have been in the military because I'm someone who, you know, I always had a corporate job. I always, I am someone who always has an institution. I work at a law school now. I'm a very institutionally minded person who kind of likes uh, low key high, or I shouldn't call it low key hierarchy because I realize the military has it. But the difference is when you have a real hierarchy in a system, you also don't have the petty bullshit, as much a petty bullshit undermining. Or if you do, you can always find someone above you who can help sort out the kind of petty bullshit. So I know I would have been in that world for sure if I hadn't had other choices. And hopefully as a woman, I wouldn't have been sent to kill anyone. But, you know. If I hadn't had uh, <laughs> loans, student loans, and of course a couple of good scholarships, I'd be there myself. My brother did go, mm-hmm. but uh, hey, Daniel, I'm just gonna call you out on Tupac. That was Please. based on an old song by Barry McGuire from the Vietnam War, <laughs> of Destruction. So if you're gonna go Tupac, I'm going Barry Come McGuire. On. <laughs> the right I love did you say Barry or, or is it Barry Manilow? We're on the eve of destruction. <laughs> But uh, that's, it's uh, yeah, that's it, it's an old sentiment it, and it's an and, and it's very valid and it has never changed. We put um, young people in peril. We put them in the worst situations and then we don't care for them when they come back. And you wonder why people have PTSD. They used to call it shell shock. They used to call it other, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of other things. And then they come back and we never give them the Veterans Administration. I have too many friends that are still suffering from the effects of PTSD and from serving this country and not being taken care of once they got back here. And so if you're going to spend money, if you're going to spend, if you, he's absolutely right. The president is absolutely right. If you're going to care for vets, then you care for vets. When they come back, you take care of them. And the Republican party is all about making sure that you take care of them, but they don't want to take care of you. They're okay with making sure that you have to give birth, but they don't want to make sure that there's somebody here to take care of them after they're born. Right. They're mm-hmm. make sure that you serve in a war, but they make, but they damn sure don't make sure that you're okay. We serve you when you get back from a war. They're okay with guns and violence, but they're not okay with what, uh, <laughs> with books. <laughs> that's, I mean, everything that's done is hypocritical. And it's and it affects, you know, to tie it all in a bow, Jen, it really does reflect back. It's one of the reasons why we're facing the debt ceiling crisis today, because we mismanage and mishandle funds. And you're right. There are ways to make it absolutely not only cost efficient, 
but you know, you could make money from it, but we don't do it. It's and this is so, you know, Brian, you're, you're, you're sparking something in my mind, which is relate two things that relate, which is we have a military and all societies do because humans are just not evolved enough not to want to steal each other's territory and kill people for power. And so everyone has these militaries. I just, I just, right. And we also have to have, we have money as a means of exchange and other things, but but these things are supposed to be facilitating. In other words, a military is there supposed to be there to protect and defend, in theory, not to, in theory, you know, try to take over other people's territory. Money is supposed to be there to facilitate, you know, growth, um, products and services you want, the arts, culture. It's not supposed to be at the center. And I just feel like things get sort of off kilter when the means become become the ends. And I'm reminded of, if you'll follow this path, uh, this fabulous biography of John Maynard Keynes, brilliant economist. And I came to find out for the first time reading it, I don't know if you know this about Keynes, but he supported the whole Bloomsbury group. He was supporting Virginia Woolf and all those people. And I guess the point I'm making is he's someone who understood money was important because of what it could buy, not in and of itself. And, and so you look at someone like the vulgar former president, uh, Donald Trump, and money was important to him as a way of keeping score, and he bought tacky shit with it. It wasn't like he knows how to support the arts or culture. That's why he had, you know, I just, and the same Dogs thing with- playing it, poker. He has a lot of those paintings. <laughs> but 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 it's the same thing with military. You're supposed, you know, and that, that for this very reason, we should be thanking the people who do the dirty work for us, who do the protecting the country. We shouldn't be centering families carrying AK-47s in the street. Right, it's the same thing as flat is throwing money around in front of people, like a putting money in your bra and walking around. It's, it's tacky, it's stupid, and it, it, it centers the means and not the good. And I just don't even know how this has become America. It's like I a mean, whole fucking but, game well, show. But, 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 but look at the expenditures real quick. We have, I, I believe, I looked at it recently. We are the top. We spend more than the next ten nations combined on, on defense. And eight of them are allies. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, you know, it's a, and the, and the bad part about it is, you know, I'm not saying don't spend on defense. I'm saying, could we have some oversight? And but can we make it proportional to the actual needs of the country? Because I think that this, this in like, Jenna, I will push back on, on, on the military spending piece because the reason why we have outsized military and outsized militaries, because the biggest thing that we are protecting isn't democracy, it's white supremacy, right? And it's our ability to go ahead and take over other countries and disrupt their economies and be able to literally rape and pillage their natural resources that it is about it has always been about manifest destiny. It was never about like, oh, let us protect our property. Because when you go back to uh, tribal nations, when you go back to indigenous nations, they did not think in I, they thought in we, right? So it is white supremacy and Eurocentric thinking that has been spread around the world. So like empire and the Monroe Doctrine and let's take their oil, stuff like that. I know yeah. You're giving me some reality here. You know, you? but, well, but I just, but I just, I say, but I say that, I say that to the point that like, you know, we have been indoctrinated to believe that because things have always been this, like, because we understand it as having always been this way, that then, oh my God, if we were to downsize our military, and I mean downsize as giving them a rational budget that was aligned to Brian's point with the other 10 countries budgets, and then redistributed that money 
across to our healthcare, across the environment, education, and what have you. You understand the value of a country by what they value. And we value war because we want, because we want to be able to consume and crush as many people as possible. All of our problems stem from the stem from money. All of our problems stem from this need to overextend ourselves. We talk about immigration and oh my God, all of these undocumented people are coming into the country. Well, if we hadn't have fucked up their economy, if we hadn't have fucked up their country, if we hadn't have played Monopoly and chess with their leadership, maybe their countries would be stable, right? But we don't want to tell like the full context of, of those stories. And we just tell ourselves that, and we live in this center of fear that if we downsize the military, oh my God, they're going to come and get us. Who? Who? See, I'll go you one better. We always, you know, we, we put here, this is the God's honest truth. We have for the last 150 years, scream, rant, and rave about uh, Latin America and Southern America and how horrible it is. And we're worried about immigration. And guess what? We created the problem. It was, if you want to go back to 1927, Smedley Butler, who was the second highest decorated Marine ever, wrote a book called uh, War as a Racket and talked about how the U.S. military is used in Central and South America in order to keep cheap labor for the companies in the United States. We And then, guess what? Well, they have cheap labor. So they're working for Dole Pineapple, working for, you know, whatever. And then, oh, oh, there's a demand. There's a demand in the United States for drugs. Oh, my God. Well, they make the drugs in Bolivia and in Colombia. It's a supply and demand situation. We created. We have the demand. They have the supply. Everything that we talk about in immigration is our fault. And it started with the Monroe Doctrine. And it's how we've treated Central and South America. It's keeping them poor and helpless. And that creates desperation. And of course, they're fine capitalists. There's a demand here. There's a supply there. What do you think is going to happen? And because people are poor and desperate, it becomes violent. And because it's illegal, it becomes violent. We created every problem. We created the problem in Iran. We, We created the problem in Iraq. Everything yep. in the Middle East, Iran was a just because they didn't want to nationalize their oil, right? They didn't want to turn their nationalized oil industry over to, you know, Shell Oil or whatever. We overthrew them. That there is no situation on this globe where you can say the U.S. military has not had a hand, and it's it's usually against the advice of people in the military, made by people like Lauren Boebert and and Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. And presidents who decide, well, it's this is a great way to use the military. That's it's it, it all goes back to the politics. So where we are now, land. then, how yeah. do we? So we, if we have this, is sort of the geopolitical backdrop that affects our domestic policy because we're talking about that now. Where do we go from here in terms of? The, the culture wars like how do they is that how do they fit in because as much as you know we can say well they're a distraction they seem to be designed to turn us against each other exactly yet again exactly Get, well, the best way to make sure that this continues and it propagates is for the rich to make sure that the rest of us are fighting over shit they don't care about why they still keep taking away the money i'm not saying that all the problems aren't true they are but they are created by and large, to keep us squabbling while the, you know, poor white people and poor black people have far more in common with each other 
than they have with rich white people who somehow get them to vote no but the new thing but that's what i see happening because i think after the george the the uprising that was multiracial around george floyd it seems like the new tactics have been moved around the gender the gender and sexuality spectrum yeah that's the new divide that's a new divider and um it's just it's just it's just terrible how messed up people seem to be about what freedom is i mean and and what gender is like the idea i don't know i just i just it just it really scares me the way it seems to be working and i don't know if any of you maybe charlotte do you want to speak to any of this well i think one reason that republicans have gained traction is that democrats are fighting with one hand tied behind their back Right. It, when Democrats don't want to engage and we leave that information vacuum empty and open, Republicans are all too happy to fill it. They have no problem weaponizing these issues in bad faith. President Biden has been very outspoken on trans rights. There have been a couple of Democratic leaders, Democratic members of Congress who have been outspoken. And the DNC has been doing a lot of work lately as well. But a lot of Democratic leaders are not speaking out. Right now, uh, there is a state representative in Montana. Her name is Zoe Zephyr. And Montana moved to ban gender-affirming care. Now, for those who don't know, gender-affirming care is uh, basically health care for children who are transgender. And this has been validated and affirmed by every major medical association. Uh, The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, every physician's group and authority has said that gender-affirming care is necessary and life-saving. There's no question. In fact, the American Medical Association said last year in a report and study that gender-affirming care could prevent as many as 73% suicides among trans kids, 73%. So here's why I'm saying this. When Montana moved to ban gender-affirming care, Zoe Zephyr, who is the first openly trans state legislator in Montana, spoke out against it, and she said that Republicans would have blood on their hands. And she is absolutely correct in that. That is, that is an accurate thing to say. Instead of listening to her and trying to engage respectfully, they barred her from the House floor of Montana. Barred her. So she can't enter the the House floor of Montana uh, legislature for the rest of the session. I really like uh, Senator John Tester. I think he's a great guy. Before we get to Tester, what was the pre, what is the, I know the reason why they banned her, but what was the pretext they used? Just saying you spoke. Uh, They said protests. She, she yeah, yeah. Well, there were. Got you. Okay, so Charlotte. Yeah, there were people Tester, who came in and. Pre- so Tester, who we usually right. Like, so is- so this is all. All of this is to get to this point, right? So Senator John Tester, I, I really admire him. I think he's a great guy, and I, I certainly hope he gets reelected next year. But it would be very easy for Senator Tester to speak out right now, and he's not. He knows this is going on. I reached out to his office, to his staff, and they said they would talk about it and see what could happen. But it's been a week now since she was barred from the floor. She's been mistreated terribly by Montana legislators. And he hasn't spoken out. And I think it's because Democrats, a lot of Democrats, including Senator Tester, are too scared to speak out about transphobia because they don't know enough about it. I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to be a good Democrat and say that you know these issues are complicated and that what matters is winning. But I got to tell you, folks, for the trans community right now, we're wondering what's the point in winning next year if we're not going to be protected. And it's been rather heartbreaking to watch us be left behind by some in the party who are far more concerned with re-election 
than they are taking care of the most vulnerable people in this country. And right now, that's trans children. You know, I, I, I just dropped for, for the folks watching in our, in our private chat, there was a, a, a tweet um, by a really disgusting, and I, and, I, and I say this, and I use the word disgusting, and I said today that I need to find a deeper word, um, but Carrie Seekins Crow, who is a representative, a Republican in Montana, after Zoe had offered, you know, the facts with regard to uh, trans youth and suicide, uh, went on to the House floor to talk about her own uh, daughter having had suicidal ideations and said that yeah. she would rather her daughter commit suicide than to allow her to transition. And I want folks to like sit with that for a minute, that when we are trying desperately within the LGBTQ community, the trans community specifically, to have a conversation, to offer up facts and statistics about what discrimination and anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ policy actually does. And when Zoe offered up, you do, you are, you are creating a crisis and you will have blood on your hand that the response from a Republican representative, like think about the fucking climate that we live in where you would get on the house floor and still have a fucking job after saying that you would rather your daughter take her own life than give her the opportunity to transition and live a full and complete life. This is coming from a party that has said that they are pro-life. This is coming from a party that says and has monopolized and we have ceded the term family values to. And we sit here and you have the testers of the world sit there with a platform and say absolutely fucking nothing, right? Why are Republicans running a campaign of hate against the trans community? Why are they creating a climate of violence where it is acceptable through their language of dehumanization for then somebody to take a gun, right? To take hands to a community that is already that it's already marginalized. But when you look at the murder rate of trans people, particularly black trans women, it is well above the average. And why is that? Because you have politicians like Karen Seekins uh, Crow in Montana who think that it is, that they would rather, and this is, there is no difference than when the Ku Klux Klan would say, there is no good black person, but a dead black person. That is exactly what they are doing right now to the trans community. And I gotta tell you that I don't give a damn if Democrats understand what it means to have gender affirming care. You should know what it means to be fucking human and stand up for your fellow human. You don't have to understand every single um, uh, uh, a concept around what it means to transition, what it means to be trans. You have to understand what it means to be human. And the fact that they can't step out on that fact, and we are just allowing our young trans uh, community, we're saying, oh, well, go with God. I hope you'll be okay, right? That's what yep. you're doing when you sit silent and you have a platform in the way that Tester does. And yes, Biden has been good on the issue, but let me tell you something. Good is not good enough when you have kids that are afraid to go to school. Good is not good enough when they're going to be, when medication is going to be stopped cold turkey and we have no idea what the, what the medical outcomes of that will be. 
You're on mute, Jen. Oh, you're on mute, Jen. Sorry. It's so upsetting that anyone would ever say that about another person, let alone their own child. And I feel mm -hmm. the same way you, you do, both of you do, Charlotte and Danielle, which is anyone, especially anyone who is not trans, should be, who understands anything about human rights and freedom should be speaking to this. And one of the excuses you find being given to why folks claim they don't support gender-affirming care is something I think people need to deal with head-on, which is what about this small percentage of people who detransition? And my response is, great, I'm glad people can detransition. There, you know, a lot of, you know, to the extent that you're exploring um, your gender identity and you're not sure if you're non-binary, you're trans, there's some people who are more sure than others. The, the excuse they give is that um, this is so terrible. Well, if you have, you know, a thousand people and one or two or ten, I don't care what it is, decide it's not for them. There's no harm. And we're talking about the kinds of things we're talking about for gender affirming care for young people are hormones or hormone su suppressants, depending on things. There can be things like, it, you know, usually at 18, maybe younger, there might be things like top surgery or, or whatever. So what? Um, people, you know, if you have top surgery because you're assigned female at birth and you really think you're, um, you, you really are not comfortable with that, and later you decide, you know what, I, I regret that, in the rare instance, you could have surgery there. When I was growing up, there were young people, I'm Jewish, who didn't, I'm mentioning this, who didn't like what their nose looked like. There are other people who have noses they don't like. I'm just referring to this. And a good percentage of Jewish women did that. Did anyone say to them, oh, my God, you're going to regret it later? Look, how come we didn't have 100 articles about who was the girl from, the young woman from, from um, Dirty Dancing? What's her name? Uh, um, Jennifer... Uh, um... uh, Gray. I cannot think of her name. Jennifer Gray. Yeah. Jennifer Gray. Yeah. Jennifer so, Gray. People, you know, she never looked like herself again, you know? So she regretted it. Guess what? No one else ever has ever regretted that if they did it. Or people who do, who don't like the size of their chest, who, who it's a, think, it's a bullshit, it's like it's a bullshit argument. What I'm saying, no, it's a bullshit <laughs> like it's, argument. It's, 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 it's bullshit. It's a bullshit argument, but I think you have to, so there are these, they're scaring parents and scaring the public into thinking this is something that people aren't choosing and that most people regret. And my view is whatever. Like why, you know, I, people often change how they present their gender within a certain frame. And I feel like there are some people who really understand, you know, they were born, assigned female at birth, but they really are male. And let them do what they're gonna do. And there are others, you know, I don't know. I just don't understand what the, like I wish people would talk about this without shame. And I know that maybe I'm going on and on, but these are, these are normal conversations. Sorry, Charlotte, go ahead. Oh, you're fine. You're doing great. No, I, I'm appreciating all this. This is great. I just wanted to really quickly point out, you know, even among the very extremely small percent of the trans community that does detransition, uh, the vast majority of them do so because they don't have resources, right? They don't have access to healthcare. They don't have a social safety net. They detransition out of survival. They do it because otherwise they would be homeless. They would die. They wouldn't be employed. You know. The vast majority of detransitioners choose to go that route because otherwise they would just cease to exist. And that was because we don't have a system, a society set up to support trans people. That's why. So when I see all these articles about detransitioners, you know, my heart goes out to them because they clearly did not have the love and support they needed to go along the path they needed. 
And by the way, I want to be very clear about this. Let's just do a fresh reminder for everybody watching. Uh, you don't get uh, hormones before you're 16 if you're a trans kid. And you'll get surgery before 18 if you're a trans teenager. That is, that those are the medical paths that have been cited by every major medical authority, have been confirmed uh, and said to be healthy for, by every major medical authority. Last year, there were 3,200 young women in this country who had breast enhancement surgery, 3,200 cosmetic breast enhancement surgery. Where are the bills to ban this? Nowhere. Because those young girls or those young, those young women and their parents and doctors talked about it and decided maybe that's the best path for them. We can debate or you know, maybe it's not my place to debate, whatever. I'm just saying that right. trans teenagers aren't getting surgeries. And yet here we have this huge industry of young women right. in high school who get breast enhancement surgery and no one gives a shit about that you know and right and my it, view it on that is if they're and my view is if their doctors think it's better for their identity and how they see themselves okay right but you're exactly right like why where is that conversation I mean, the, the reality for me here as a person who is not trans but is queer is that I don't really give a fuck about your opinion on my humanity, right? Like, I actually don't give a fuck. I don't give – like, I, I feel – and, uh, you know, there, there – it's just the consistency of having to explain, right, and bring people along to just see somebody as human capable of making decisions – for themselves, for their family, and not leaving that the fuck alone, right? Like, I'm not asking mm -hmm. you to be a medical professional. I am not asking you to understand from beginning to end the trans experience. What I'm asking you is to understand the human experience and the fact that I don't want anyone being able to debate my humanity and tell me how I can or cannot live, right? Or that I am deserving of basically taking my own life. Right. Because you don't because I make you uncomfortable. Right. Which is essentially what the Republican Party is doing. And Democrats who are silent on this issue and not as fervent as they should be are complicit. And because of that complicity, people will die. People are dying. Right. And so I, I feel mm -hmm. like I, the, the fact that we continually as people from marginalized communities have to explain our humanity already puts us on the losing side of this. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to explain to you a fucking thing other than the fact that I am human and I'm worthy of dignity and respect like everyone else's. Your daughter wants to get breast implants, bet, go for it, right? Mine wants to remove their breast, bet, go for it. Because that should be the choice between people and their doctors, period. And I wanna add, I 100% agree. And I wanna add that my life is enriched by trans people. I don't tolerate trans people. My life is enriched by anyone especially against all odds, against the oppression, who still has joy and courage and support enough to be their full selves. That makes the world a better place for me. It doesn't matter that it makes a better, better place for me. It's none of my business, but this is... Well, listen, Jen, I disagree. I can't stand trans people. So that's where we have to depart, <laughs> in opinion. Oh my gosh. Well, Danielle, I know you've got a, you've got a dash. We've got a few more minutes here. It's been, been lovely hosting. There she, there she went. So, um, what, what did she, we... She, she pieced out. She had an Irish accent there. <laughs> oh, you've got How you doing, flags. Jen? I am, I am good. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, you know, despite um, how crazy the world is, we just, we could just keep moving forward. And I've been finding a lot of um, peace and refuge 
and creativity in reading. You know, I started a podcast that's only on nonfiction books called Booked Up, but so I'm cheating. I'm cheating on the side and reading fiction. Um, and that's been fun in poetry. Um, and I just, you know, there's something about returning to poetry, um, certain poems at different points in your life or certain music uh, that is so enriching. Oh, is there anything, so what are, are you, what, what kind of art are you escaping into these days, Charlotte, as we, as we wrap? Oh, wow. That's a great, that's a great, uh, question. So Mackie Smith is one of my favorite poets. Uh, she has this great poet called, a great poem called Good Bones. Uh, but it. her new one memoir is out. Uh, her mm -hmm. memoir is called, we, uh, uh, we can make this place beautiful. And it's about her divorce. Uh, and it is, it is excellent, y'all. Maggie Smith, uh, she, she wrote this gorgeous, gorgeous book about, so basically the premise is that uh, uh, she got big after that book of poems that she released mm -hmm. and her husband got really resentful and insecure over it and made her life <gasps> hell. Oh yeah. no. What? So she wrote a book about that and it is so wonderful and deeply empathetic and, I, oh. and, and powerful, very empowering. So anyway, I love her. Can I point out real quick that there are two important months this is Jewish American uh, Heritage Month, and it's uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Month. Uh, and so it's really good that we all, those of us who are not Asian or Jewish, uh, that we really um, you know, just kind of lean into that and be good supportive allies of those communities uh, because both have been under um, enormous violence and discrimination over the past several years. So it's very important we stand beside them and uh, make sure that we're celebrating these communities. That is such a good point. Thank you for reminding me of those months. And also, thank you for telling me a little bit more about Maggie's book. I have not picked my May book of the month. And I'm wondering if you wanted maybe to be one of my special guests. And we could talk. Have you read it already? Or yes. Oh, would yes, you be, I have. Would you I do it? it. Are you, I'm going to talk yeah. to you after. But would you be one of my special guests talking about the book since you love it? Jen, I'll do anything you ask me. I love you. Okay. I think you're great. Well, can you tell me where you got that blouse? Because I like that too. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, this was from Nordstrom Rack. Yeah, it was it was twenty five bucks. So I found a good deal. It's very pretty. <laughs> um, okay, you. well, you know, let's let's just let's just keep the conversations going in between what is really a looming disaster with a debt crisis and creeping fascism. We all, always have to find some peace of mind, some joy, and some honesty in our personal lives and in the art that we select, I believe. Um, and with that, uh, thank you all. Um, Mary was out this week, and she, she, she let us all, all host in her absence. And thank you. Thank you for sticking with us.